So we're going to continue worshiping here. Only it's going to be a sermon. You know, you think about that's kind of what we're doing. You know, you think about God's word. God took the time to make sure we have what we need, preserved it for thousands of years. Might just be a good idea to see what he said. That's kind of what we're doing. That's part of the worship. Um, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we're going to be in verse 5 here, um, talking about triumph in Christ and some about forgiveness. And you think about when you look at through these letters, what are these are, we're, we're kind of like a fly on the wall. We get to find out how the Apostle Paul, uh, commissioned by the Holy Spirit to be an apostle and give us uh, things about the gospel, how he dealt with this particular church. And so we have to go in context of what's going on there. But what, what happens when you do that, because this is a Holy Spirit-inspired word, you also get some timeless theology and doctrine that we can use, and you're going to see that as we go through. So we're going to start out in the first six verses here, and you'll see a particular situation and then see how Paul handles it. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs." So this is, we just kind of get part of the letter. You know, it's okay if you've ever found a letter sometimes and you're trying to find out what the heck was going on in the letter before. Uh, this is kind of what's going on here. Something has happened. Somebody has wronged Paul. Um, and this particular person, Paul said, you need to deal with. But then he's, he's talking about how the end game of this and what it's supposed to end up looking like. Notice here, Paul deals with the problem. Uh, he doesn't ignore it, and he's not passive-aggressive. Um, not a lot of passive-aggressive apostles. Do you see that? This is hard in churches. I know that. And you don't want to go into every little conflict, you know. But if there is, you know, we're supposed to reconcile, folks, and it's not always easy. Families are the same way. Um, I know none of our families ever have any problems, but I hear that there are families that really have some Christians, it's like we need to deal with this. It, it's hard. I realize it's hard, but it's much, much worse if we don't deal with it. And that's what Paul's doing. Um, and why does he do that? What's his motive? Well, he tells us his motive is love. You know, and how do we define that? Well, we've got really good verses. Now, uh, I'm not saying this doesn't apply to a marriage. It should. Um, and this, these verses get used a lot. You've probably all heard them, right? Um, and they're good, but really this is first grid is just talking about Christian love with each other. What does it look like? So don't just use these. I think this is great if you're married, use these. This is very good. Um, Eleven things that you should do and what love means. But it, it's true in any Christian relationship. And it's true in this relationship where this person has wronged Paul. It looks like he might be repentant. And so Paul is talking about bringing him comfort. Because love is patient. You've got to wait. You know, Love is kind does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And sometimes we think about our relationships and it's like, you know, how many times have we done the opposite of what this says? Well, that's probably not love. It does not insist on its own way. That's that agape love. That's the number one thing about it. You are not focused on you. It's not about you. It's about the other person or love of God. It's about God. 
It's not irritable or boastful. Now, we can all be irritable, um, but we just have to be careful with that. Why, why are we irritable? You know, we have to think back. It's usually because there's something that we probably should not worry about so much that didn't happen or did happen that we didn't want to happen. Um, and maybe our focus is just a little off. It's not resentful. This is agape love, folks. This is not the love of the world, is it? Um, a lot of times the love does insist on its own way, the love of, of, of the, the, the secular love that's out there and the way it's... And the last part is so good. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And this is really what Paul is doing. If you love this person who has wronged you, are you going to take the time to tell them that they are doing something against Christ because the truth is it would be much better if they got reconciled to God and this person than to stay there and be at enmity with both. And those are hard times, aren't they? Um, Paul knows his motives. We talked about that last week. He understand, always wanted to make sure his conscience was clear. So, you know, these three verses, you know, these are ones good to know in, in, in any relationship, um, and even maybe non-Christian, right, with a non-Christian friend, but definitely in the church, definitely in our relationships, are we acting this way? And, you know, most of this doesn't have anything to do with emotion. Can, but that's not the base, is it? It's, where's your commitment? Um, so think about that. This is, what, this is what Paul is in the background. That love word just gets sprinkled with so much weird stuff in our culture. You know, come back to this. This is a good definition uh, of what love for each other should look like. And then in verses 6 through 8, he gives kind of a good example of what it means to judge graciously. And uh, you can turn with me if you want, but we're going to go to, this isn't the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the, I think this is probably one of the top two misinterpreted verses in all the Bible. So I'm going to give it to you right. Uh, and you, know, you can disagree. That would be wrong. But um, we, we, when, you, when you take words, you have to look at the whole passage. And what we do is we take essentially Matthew 7, 1a and make a theology out of it. And I've heard this all the time. And I think people are well-meaning to some extent. But how many times have you heard this? Well, you're not supposed to judge. Really? Have you read the whole passage? You're not supposed, what, what does that mean? I think what that means is I don't care about enough about you to care if you're having bad problems because I'm not going to talk to you. That's what I think. You, you all make judgments, don't you? I hope so. Because that would be pretty dull if you didn't. So let me read this the way I think you should read this. If you read the rest of it, this makes all the sense in the world. Because I don't know if you knew this, and this is pretty deep, but keep with me here. Matthew 7 comes right after Matthew 6. You flowing? And we're going to, maybe we'll hit Matthew 6 real quick here. This is a positive way of saying what we kind of have a negative way here. So what I did is I read through verse 5, and I said, what would be a good substitute? What does he really mean by judging here? And I think it's very easy. Judge graciously, with grace. That's what Paul's trying to do. Do not judge ungraciously, and you will be n not be judged ungraciously. Now that starts to make sense if you read the rest of the passage. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Meaning, if you're going to be ungracious to other people, then God's going to be ungracious to you. Do you want that? I don't, I don't want that. If it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be in a relationship with Christ at all, right? It's only by his grace. And read on. And with the same measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? 
It's a, it, this is a metaphor. There's a problem. Your brother has a problem. Your fellow believer has a problem. And you see that. That's good that you see it. But you don't notice the log in your own, which might just be that you're not judging graciously. I'm not sure. It might be that you're insisting on your own way. Where, where did we get that from? Oh, that's, that's the opposite of what love is. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You know, you're not being gracious to them at all. You're being hypocritical. You hypocrite. See, I told you. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Examine yourself. Why are you talking to this person? If somebody's in the church, in my position, there may be somebody that's doing something that is ungodly. And why would I go to him? So we look good in Grace Church? I've tried that. We don't look that good. I mean, I'll dress up nice, but, you know, we're always going to be falling short of the glory of God. It's, it shouldn't be that, right? It should be because you love the person and you want them to do, you want them to have a better connection with Christ. That's gracious. And if you just go back a little bit after the disciples' prayer, some people still call the Lord's Prayer, um, verse 14 in chapter 6, for if you forgive others their trespasses, grace, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your, their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. With the same judgment that you use, you will be judged with. It's the same thing he's saying in chapter 7. Does that make sense? So don't say you're not supposed to judge. That's just stupid. That is not true. You're not supposed to judge judgmentally. You're supposed to judge with grace because that's the way God does it. And if you see somebody that's doing something that's against Christ and hurting their faith, it would be very loving to walk alongside them graciously and see if you could help. Help with the speck. Examining, why am I doing this? If you're doing this self-serving or trying to have some sort of appearance of goodness, then I would just be quiet. If that doesn't make sense, give me a call or rewatch this on Facebook. Maybe. It's not really that hard, folks, if we just look through what, what it actually says. Again, context, context, context. But this, this portion of Paul's letter is also about forgiveness. Now, y'all that have been here last year or so, you know about forgiveness. We nailed that sucker in eight weeks or whatever it was. Um, good stuff. We had two definitions. This comes from the book about forgiveness by Chris Bronze, who actually grew up in Iowa, which is kind of cool. Definition of God's forgiveness. This is kind of our working definition now, completely plagiarized from Christ. Well, it's not really plagiarized because his name's right there, so I don't think he would care. Um, a commitment. That, that most of the time we don't think about forgiveness that way, do we? A commitment. I'm going to do this. By the one true God to pardon graciously. There's that word again. Those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although the commitment does not eliminate all consequences. That's a really good definition of forgiveness. And what's the, you know, you keep getting the goal right here. If you don't have that, you really don't have this. That's the key. Reconciliation. Reconciled back to God. Now, what we're talking about here is what we call Christian forgiveness. So it's a little different because it's ours. A commitment, again, by the offended party to graciously and graciously Pardon the repentant. Again, pardon the repentant. Again, repentant. Uh, we had that in the, in the forgiveness series. If they don't repent, you really can't forgive them because we're supposed to do it like God, and does God forgive those who don't repent? 
That's fairly clear. No. So we're, we, don't, we can't do that. We can't make cheap. And the people don't do it. That's up to them. From moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Restore them again. Let's forget about what happened. Yes, you messed up. Yes, you've been forgiven. Now our relationship is restored. We, we have that reconciliation, and now we can go forward. Um, and I, in the churches I've been in, when this happens, the depth of relationship is much, much more deep when that happens than before it did, before the problem even happened, because people realize that we're actually trying to follow what Christ told us to follow. Although all qui- not all qu- consequences are necessarily going to be eliminated. Um, people get divorced. You can still reconcile with your former partner without being remarried again. Um, all consequences are there, but, you know, that can be forgiven, that can be washed away, and move forward, you know. We should think about that when we take this. You can always move forward today from whatever baggage you have, because that's what the cross is about, is taking our baggage away and not counting it against us. So God looks at us and still sees us blameless. I mean, you wake up in the morning and thinking, I'm blameless. It seems a little proud, doesn't it? I wouldn't really think that. I would think, God still sees me blameless. That's really cool. You know, there's no sin you can commit that can't be forgiven. God's stronger than your ability to screw up, you know, and that's really nice to know. And the key, again, is reconciliation. We see it in the text. The foundational core, he says in verse 10, for your sake and in the presence of Christ. This is the idea, for Christ's sake and for your sake. This is why we're doing this, and this is why we should do all of these things. So here we have just a little problem in, in, uh, in Corinth, but yet we learn a lot from this. How are we supposed to treat each other? I mean, it appears that this person was really, really, really mean to Paul and said some really hurtful things. But yet Paul says, if you forgive him, I forgive him. If you guys say he's, he's reconciled back to God, I'm fine. You don't need to, I don't need any more because uh, he's doing what we call Biblical forgiveness. And the reason and consequence of not following Christ's specific commands here in 11, what if we don't do that? What if we say, well, you know, I hear this all the time. It's like, well, I can't forgive that person. It's like, you know, it really doesn't matter if you can or can't. You need to. Let's figure out how you can do that. And then well, I always get this one. And it, it's kind of funny if you think about it. Because remember, the whole, the whole definition of forgiveness has grace in it. And remember, grace is unearned, right? So if you can't forgive somebody, if you say, I just can't do that, and then they say, because they don't deserve it. Well, that's what you're waiting for. <laughs> it can be a long life, folks. Um, maybe God should wait till you deserve it. Yeah, it's going to be a long wait, too. I didn't see any waiting for that one perfect person in our church, but they're not here tonight. Well, that's done. Didn't come, no point. <laughs> yeah. But, you think, but what does he say? Not being outwitted by Satan's designs. And we always think, you know, satanic stuff is so, you know, movie stuff and all this. It's those little itty-bitty temptations. You know, that person wronged you. They don't deserve to be forgiven. You know what? And Satan's right. They don't deserve to be forgiven. But that's not what forgiveness is about. Do we listen to God who says, graciously forgive them if they're truly repentant or do we listen to Satan who says they don't deserve it? I, I, would, I would listen to God. That's why we read this stuff. So, Hopefully that helps you a little bit with uh, love and forgiveness because those are two words that uh, 
I think it's a big problem in Christian churches in America. People who call themselves Christians walk around with a lot of uh, animosity towards other people, a lot of baggage, and not really understanding what it means to truly love God and their, and their fellow believer. So let's do the second half here, triumph in Christ. When I came to Troas, verse 12, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So he talks of triumph and aroma, and this is kind of, both of these are kind of Old Testament words. So you think about, this section is about how true followers of Christ are used by him to reach other people. That's what Paul's talking about here. But he talks about one of the personal decisions, which is one of these things that you see in contemporary thought that I wanted to hit a little bit. He uses the term in verse 12, open door, or a door was opened. And we, we hear this a lot sometimes in decision making. Now we find this wording three other times in the, in the New Testament, so four total. Uh, and we're not going to look those up. You're welcome to do that. You've got your outline in the bulletin. Acts 14, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Colossians 4, 3, and then this one here in 2 Corinthians. Now, I will tell you this. All of these are pertaining to spreading the gospel of Christ. It's God has opened us a door to this particular area so we can go tell people about Jesus. Now, the current use of this is making decisions, saying God has opened a door. But that's never in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. It doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but we'll see that maybe it's misguided if you do it incorrectly. Um, nowhere in the Bible do we find other types of decisions other than spreading the gospel have used this open door. You know, and, and I hear people, and I know some people just use the phrase and that's fine, but some people actually make decisions this way. And I think it can be problematic. If you're trying to discern what is the best option and you're choosing merely because one option becomes available, is, you know, is, that, is it the right option? That's the problem. Um, it's often not wise. Uh, maybe wisdom would be better than just waiting for doors to open. Uh, you know, because sometimes the doors just open. I mean, you go into Walmart, it just opens on its own. You know, and sometimes, what is that really doing? Sometimes it's the, it, we take the least resistance. It's like this particular decision, well, that's going to take some time. This one over here, that's going to be easy. Open door. Yeah. But is that one right? You know, you just have to be careful with this stuff. So in these New Testament texts, Paul in 3 and then Luke in 1, who's explaining what Paul and others are doing, are simply conveying the information that the opportunity to spread the gospel was given and they knew they should go through the open door because God wanted them to spread the gospel. And that's, that's how you do this if you're going to do it. If it's something you know God wants and the door opens, do it. But people don't always use it that way. And even here, we see Paul doesn't even go through the door. You know, he said he just felt that he wanted to go find Titus. So he goes to Macedonia, which is not right by Carson, uh, although it is. It's not the Macedonia we're talking about. It's up in northern Greece. 
But to kind of land the plane on this, we just have to be careful when we use open door methodology. It's out there. Uh, I remember using as a young Christian, thinking, well, is God opening a door? And you're trying to decide and looking for signs. And then Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, so am I supposed to look for a sign? And you see, you get a little bit flustered, right? But to, right, to make non-moral decisions in this open door thing can be really problematic. And I'm talking like jobs, colleges, business opportunities. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, young man is uh, working hard in his business. And his marriage is going okay, but even what he's working now, he's really tough on his wife and his two little kids, but he's trying to do the best he can. And then a, uh, his boss comes in and said, you've been doing a good job. We're going to promote you to uh, be the head of the whole area. And it's going to mean a lot more hours and some travel. So God has opened a door, right? Yeah. Or did God open a door? Or is it the other door? You know, it just becomes, let's make a deal. You just pick one. And then what's behind it sometimes, there's a donkey. And you don't know that till the end, right? How would you discern between those two? If you're using open door methodology, God opened a door. I can go do it. Is it the right thing to do? And I don't know. I mean, you'd have to, I don't, I'm not, I'm not the guy. But because jobs are important, and, but so is family. So you have to start thinking those through. How would you decide? Wait for more open doors, closed doors, revolving doors, sliding doors? How many doors do you need? Why don't you use wisdom, godly wisdom? Here's another just kind of short one. You know, a, a guy and his sister kind of had some animosity, both Christians. They need to talk to each other. But every time the, the, the brother calls the sister on the phone, her voicemail is full. Doesn't that tick you off in a voicemail full? I mean, not that much. You, know, you still got to be gracious, I guess. But, uh, so he thought, well, God's closing a door here. Maybe I'm not supposed to talk to her. Does that make sense? I don't think so. Be careful with this stuff, folks. Be careful with thinking that you know, it's almost like a seance some way. I mean, it's like these, you know, looking for open doors. It's like, I, I don't do that. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells you to do that. Now, if you go to lunch after this and somebody comes over to you and says, we'd like you to come over to our table and tell us about Jesus. Go through that door. That's not hard. Or let's go back. Let's rewind back to the first example boss comes in and says, you know, you're working really well, and we want to promote you, but your family is important. So we're going to allow you to work half of the time at home, and half of that time we want to spend with your family too, and just be a dad. But the other half time we want you in the office, and we want you to do good because we know you do good work. That might just be a door you want to go through. Because that, 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 there's no animosity there, right? Those are easy. The hard ones are which one to go through when it's non-moral and we don't really have enough information. You have to use wisdom. And what does that mean? Know what the Bible says about such decisions, and they're probably not going to be one-to-one. Talk to people who you respect and pray that you'll make a God-honoring decision. It's better to simply use wisdom. Look for the facts, pray about it, consult wise people. Because don't forget this, most likely Satan can open doors too. And it's not always, you know, renounce Christ. It, it could just be, you know, 
God's loving. This relationship will be okay, right? It's an open door. Uh, Satan can open lots of doors. I think he opened a door for Judas. Judas went through it. Just be careful with that stuff. Moving on. Triumph in Christ. This is kind of what this is about. The idea, it leads us in a triumphal procession. It's kind of a metaphor of what it happens when somebody believes we are now no longer an enemy of God. And, and because of what Christ did on the cross and through the resurrection, we get that triumph. It's not just celebrating, it's also experiencing it. You hear that victory, you know, the victory. You know, that's a cocky victory. It's not like everything's going to be perfect, but we can go through any storm, any problem, any suffering with Christ because he's going to give us what we need by his presence, the comfort we talked about in the first chapter. You see it in Colossians, the same thing. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing them over them in him. Jesus won. I don't know if you've read that. If you read the end, he really wins. I mean, Satan gets down into the pit. It's theological <laughs> into the pit. And th that's what we have to remember. It's already done. It's going to happen. We were studying Revelation in uh, uh, 19 and a little bit 20 in the, in the women's Bible study. Uh, it's actually a pretty fun book if you actually read it uh, and not get into timing and goofiness. The, uh, there's this battle. You know, you got the rider on the white horse and you got all these people, you got all the bad guys coming and they get ready to battle and it's like, oh, then they capture him and throw him in the pit. You know there's no battle? Why? Why is there no battle? Makes for better TV. Why is there no battle? It's already been won, folks. The battle was at the cross. The battle was probably in Gethsemane. That was a battle. That's over. It's won. Don't go around thinking we're going to get beat. You're not going to get beat. You already got a victory. We're won to know. Think about that. It's pretty good. The war's been won. We not be, might not be 100% in the battles of our own lives, but the war has been won, and we have to remember that. Then he uses this pleasing aroma. This makes a lot of sense to a Jew who Paul was, a Christian Jew, obviously. It's used 43 times in the Old Testament. It's the language that, that he's trying to, and we see it back in, in Leviticus 4. And he says, take all the fat, remove it from the animal. The fat is removed in a peace offering. And that priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. Not because they deserve it. Not because all the consequences are going away, but because they repented. That's what the sacrifices were for. It was an illustration of a, of a humble and contrite heart. So this sacrifice is given with a penitent heart, if you really want, is a pleasing aroma, acceptable an offering, an, an action to Yahweh. This does not say that God likes to smell barbecue. That's not the point here. It's, it's that coming up to him. You know, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but in ancient, the time this happened back in ancient Semitic uh, culture, almost every other sets of gods, and obviously there's just one in, in Judaism, they would come down and devour the sacrifice. It was like they needed the meat but notice in, in Judaism, it was, it, you, know, who, you know who ate the meat most of the time? The priests. That's why if I was a priest, I'm like, yeah, you know, I think you're kind of screwing up. I think you better big, you know, maybe a big Angus cow. <laughs> and cut her up there and get me a medium rare. 
and then your sin will be forgiven, right? I mean, it, it's a different way of doing it, but it's the, they, it was about just offering your forgiveness. It was just a symbol. Uh, we read that this morning in our Bible study with Hebrews, how Isaiah 1 and Amos 5, how God detests the sacrifices of the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's really the same thing with this, right? Anybody can take this. You know, in fact, we probably got some Welch's in the fridge if you want more. Probably a loaf of bread, you know? What is it? It's a symbol, obviously, but what does it symbolize? You know, does it make a difference in our lives? Well, it does if you come with a humble heart, realizing what Christ did for you. But here Paul uses the, this language to describe how God sees Christ's ambassadors who spread the word. That's a pleasing aroma. Making disciples is the pleasing aroma, along with anything else like we talked at the children's sermon. And then he uses the one who accepts the gospel smells its sweetness. It's a neat metaphor, isn't it? And it's regenerated in this life and has eternal life with God. The one who rejects it is lost. He says, one fragrance from death to that death. You don't know Christ in this life. You spend an eternity away from him. One a fragrance from life to life. When you believe in Christ, you have eternal life, and then you experience that in the end and in eternity. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about life and death, heaven and hell, regenerate believers and unregenerate lost folks. And then he finishes this section of his letter with a humble, who is sufficient and worthy of this? No one. But they get to do it. Do you ever think about that? Did you think about that this morning? I didn't, but it would have been cool if I did because it would have been a little better sermon. But uh, I get to go to worship today. Or does that just sound annoying? Now, I isn't that what we, you come, you know, come into the sanctuary with praises and all that? And I know some days we do that, and I see some of the families around here with little kids. The fact that you just got here is almost a miracle, so we're thankful for that. Um, I know it's hard. It is, but boy, I, and I'll tell you, you know, right here with the mic on, uh, I, I'm proud of you for trying to do it because I know it's tough. But those kids are going to know as they grow up, this is important. We come and do this. And that's the switch, isn't it? Whether you're an adult or a kid, switch from I have to do this to I get to do this. I have to follow what Jesus said. I get to follow what Jesus said. And some days that goes back and forth, but hopefully in our lives we kind of trend up because Paul knows he's not, so this is all grace. The fact that he gets to go get beat up and do all this preaching, he's, he's liking it. I like the preaching, the beaten up part. I'm not really looking forward to I hope Maybe that won't happen. I don't know. In verse 17, he gives his motives. We're not peddling this. Uh, this is not something we just do for profit. It's for Christ, to do for Christ um, all the time. So, what does Paul do here? Well, he, gives, he gives some good practical advice to the Corinthians about forgiveness in the church. And if you want to forget, if you forget everything else I said, just remember that Paul says you need to do this. This is not a request, it's a command. And if you can't do it, find out why. Because you might just need the Holy Spirit to help you and other people coming along. And then he reminds us that all true believers have the responsibility and the privilege of, of Christ allowing us to be his ambassadors. Think about that. I'm going to pray for that as we end here. I'm going to pray that you guys get an opportunity 
to give the hope that you have in Christ to somebody this week. And I'll let God figure out if he gives it that. And you know what? If that door opens, you better darn well go through it. Let us pray. Father, I do thank you for this letter. It's so wonderful to see uh, Paul's great theology. But for each one here, came here to get to worship, to be with you, to learn more about you, to experience each other. Um, we thank you for that. But I pray for each one that each believer here that they are able to have an opportunity this week to tell somebody about the hope they have that they know you and that they'd be redeemed by you. Their guilt is washed away and they're living a life of gratitude. Amen.